All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome. Welcome to the Catholic Information Center. My name is Mitch Borisma. I'm the head of operations here at the CIC. Can you hear me now? No. Now. Now. Just now. Fantastic. Um, thank you, all of you, for coming. This is really a special evening for us. It's a special evening for me as a uh, Colorado boy who grew up and loved the faith uh, for the first time in Colorado to have Archbishop Chaput here with us. Uh, before we get started... Um, I wanted to share a little close, uh, a little news with everyone here. We have so many of our uh, closest friends here of the Catholic Information Center. Uh, then we have some exciting news. Um, at the recommendation of Father Arnie Panula, who's here up front, uh, who's been the director of the CIC for the past decade or so. Um, Father Arnie. As of... As of March 31st, Father Arnie has assumed the role of Director Emeritus, and at his recommendation and at the appointment of Cardinal Whirl, uh, we are happy to announce that Father Charles Truyos is our new director here at the CIC. Father Charles, he's originally an architect and a canon lawyer by trade. Um, he comes to us from Barcelona by way of Rome and Chicago. Um, you might even say he's a bit of a stranger in a strange land here in Washington, D.C. Um, I know he's met many of you. He's looking forward to meeting all of you. Please uh, reach out to him um, and welcome him here. Um, and we're going to introduce or welcome him to the podium now to introduce our panelists for the evening. Father Charles. Well, thank you, Mitch. Um, the first time I heard um, Archbishop Chaput talk was in my um, country of origin in Spain in, um, at World Youth Day when Archbishop was talking to thousands and thousands of young people there at, um, with Benedict XVI. And, um, and I remember because it struck me, and I have here the quote from Archbishop Chaput, I remember what he, um, you told to um, those young people, saying ultimately because it was the atmosphere, um, it was was amazing. Um, hundreds of thousands and millions of people went to World Youth Day in Madrid, and the the, the energy was at the highest level you could you could imagine. And then he said, ultimately, it will not be how you feel that will determine how genuine and profound your encounter with Jesus is. Instead, it will be determined by how much you are transformed into him and how much you burn in the desire to bring him to others by announcing the gospel. And now with his new um, book, um, in his new book, I mean, he, he goes into this uh, issue and many other um, reflections in our um, current uh, America. And with us, we have also um, Mary Eberstadt and uh, Michael Hemby. And Archbishop Chapio, who was born in 1944 in Concordia, Kansas, he joined the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin in 1965. He was ordained a priest in 1970. And he served as a pastor, spiritual director, um, seminary instructor, and in various Capuchin leadership roles. He was ordained and bishop of Rapid City, South Dakota in 1988, and appointed by Pope John Paul II, Arch Archbishop of Denver in 1997. 
and he was he is the second Native American to be ordained a bishop in the United States and the first Native American archbishop. And Pope, uh, thank you. Pope Benedict XVI appointed him Archbishop of Philadelphia in 2011. The Archbishop hosted the Eighth World Meeting of Families, an apostolic bishop of Pope Francis to Philadelphia in 2015. You all remember that. He was delegate to the World Synod of the Family in 2015 and currently serves on the Permanent Council of the Holy See's International Synod of Bishops. He also currently chairs the U.S. Bishops' Committee on Lady Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Archbishop Chapieu is the author of Living the Catholic Faith and Render unto Caesar, and is here tonight to discuss his latest work, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian World. Mary Eberstadt, who is senior a research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute here in Washington, D.C. She um, she's the author of several um, books and, and articles, including how, to, how the West Really Lost God, It's Dangerous to Believe, and Adam and Eve After the Peel. She has written for many magazines and newspapers, including Time, National Review, Policy Review, The Weekly Standard, Commentary, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and First Things. And her 2010 novel, The Loser Letters, was recently adapted for the stage and premiered at the Catholic University of America in fall 2016. Michael Hemby, um, our third panelist, is Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on marriage and family, marriage and family at the Catholic University of America. Before joining the institute in 2007, he was an assistant professor of theology in the Honors College at Baylor University and the associate director of the Baylor Institute for Faith and Learning. Dr. Hemby has written in widely, widely in the areas of systematic and philosophical theology, philosophy of science and biology and political theory. And in particular, his 2015 article in First Things, The Civic Project of American Christianity, was an important contribution to the ongoing debate about public significance of Christianity in America and the church's proper response to our changing cultural situation. And I want to, uh, I would like you to join me in welcoming Archbishop Shapiro. Well, thank you, Father Charles. Uh, I'm always uh, thinking about seating when I have mass at our cathedral, and I know there's at least one empty seat here, the one I just left. <laughs> so if someone wants to take that, you're most welcome to. And actually, there are two seats here. <laughs> uh, and then you can get up when, when we leave. Then we need, we, We're going to come up here after I finish speaking, and, and the two uh, responders are finished speaking. But if you really want to sit, there's no reason you can't take these chairs. You know? <laughs> I'm old. I would do it, you know. So, well, very. I'm very, very grateful that you're here tonight, and a bit embarrassed at the size of the crowd. Good. Here's a lady that I know who's going to actually take the seat. Good for you, right here. 
So you can sit right here. And there's one over here too, whichever you prefer. Which would you prefer? Okay, she, she's going to go over there. Very good. We'll let her get seated and then we'll get a more formal start to the talk, okay? Can you hear out in that room? That's really good. I'm glad you can do that. Very good. Before I begin my more uh, serious reflections, I want to thank Father Arnie Panula for being here. I've known Father Arnie for a lot of years, and uh, it's just wonderful that he's here today. He's been struggling with health issues, and I think all his, his fans are more delighted, much more delighted to see him than to see me. So it's really <laughs> wonderful that you're here, Father. So thank you very much for being here. And we're also grateful to Father Charles Trulos and Mitch Bersma, I hope Borsma, and Rosemary Holt for the wonderful hospitality of the center, not only tonight but at all times. And I also want to thank Mary Everstad, who, you know, she and I have been missing each other in terms of uh, having a chance to even greet each other for many, many years. She's been in Philadelphia twice as I've been there, and I've been out of town both times she's been there. And she still agreed to respond to my talk tonight, so I'm deeply grateful to that. Mary, you have some wonderful books, and you make a great contribution to um, the life of uh, our country and the church today. So we're grateful for that. You know, uh, when you applauded me when I was introduced, to be, you know, the only thing you applauded me for was being an Indian. <laughs> And I had nothing to do with that. And I had absolutely nothing to do with that. All the things I worked hard for, not a, not a thing. But you, you play, well, so I'm grateful anyway. So, and my mother's grateful too. So, so. Dr. Hanby is a special man for me because I think he's really a very brilliant uh, thinker today who is always ahead of me on a lot of issues. And uh, I was deeply honored when he also agreed to be a responder to my talk today. So... Dr. Hanby, thank you very, very much. We're, I'm honored by your presence. You better applaud him. Both Mary and, and Michael uh, helped me to deepen my own thinking as I uh, put uh, together strangers in a strange land. And uh, I would encourage you to read the things they write because in some ways I think their writing is much more profound than my own. And finally, I need to put on a plug for a forthcoming and very important book from Yale University Press by Notre Dame's Patrick Deneen, Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, Patrick Deneen wrote a very nice review of my book, so I, I want to <laughs> mention uh, his book at the beginning of my reflections. Mary, Michael, and Patrick are three of the many reasons why none of us should worry too much about the ch future of our church's intellectual life. They're really wonderful people. So. so here we go. Here's my more formal reflections. Christians are a people of hope. That's how we describe ourselves. And Pope Francis warns us, I think very wisely, that we need to embody the joy of the gospel, to be credible witnesses of the gospel. We need to embody its joy. We need to live in a way that draws others to Jesus Christ with a spirit of energy and a spirit of freedom. That's why pessimism is such a dangerous thing. Pessimism can poison people's entire lives. But being a realist, that's how I describe myself rather than a pessimist, 
is not the same thing as being a pessimist. Optimism and pessimism are two sides of the same coin. Each can be misleading because both God and the devil are full of surprises. They really are. You never know what's going to happen. The virtue of hope is a trust in the future based on our faith in a loving God. It gives us energy to do something about the way the world is because we have hope for a better future, which is in the hands of God, who loves us in an incredible personal way and loves us unrepeatably as a father because each one of us here is the result of God's creative imagination, right? I mean, we exist as we are uniquely. There's no one like us anywhere ever will be because God imagined us and he liked what he imagined and we came into being. Uh, If we have a God like that, we can have hope in the future, which is in his hands. And that love endures forever, even when our lives and the world around us seem to be in turmoil. And I think our, our world is really in turmoil, as is our church today. Hope is not optimism. There's a line in the King James Version of the book of Job, where Job, even in the worst of his sufferings, says this about God. He says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's the virtue of hope. It's not about how you feel or how things are going. It's about trusting in God's future and trusting in his love for us. There's an immense immense amount of beauty and good in the world. There is a deep well of goodness in our own country. I'm still proud to be an American. And we should all take pride in that. We should never ignore or underestimate it. The future is never predetermined except in the very long framework of God's design. Humans are creatures of intellect and free will. Therefore, we make the future because, as St. Augustine said, we are the times. We complain about the times, but we're the times. No one else is. And that's good news because it means that nations can recover from their problems and failures. They can renew their best virtues and their strengths. But it also means that they can change their nature in a darker way than the present. They can become an obstacle to life rather than its guardian. I wrote Strangers in a Strange Land to help Catholics and other Christians to understand that. But more importantly, I hope the book helps people realize that we can live as we can live a Christian life of hope and joy even in a culture that often seems alien and unwelcoming to the faith we believe. The background to strangers is simple. The idea for the book began in 2010, seven years ago, with an article I wrote called Catholics in the Next America. Now what's going to be happening in the next 10 or 20 years? And then a talk I gave a few days later called Life in the Late Republic. But even before that, it was clear to me that President Obama's election in 2008 was more than just a routine change of administrations. 
I think it signaled a deep generational and cultural shift. And that became obvious in 2011 when the White House declined to continue defending the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down key elements of DOMA in its weirdly reasoned Windsor decision. The court's Obergefell decision in 2015 then legalized same-sex marriage. But in doing so, it simply confirmed trends in our national life that have been growing for many, many years. So the Supreme Court decision didn't change anything. It just recognized the huge change that had already taken place in our culture for many, many years. Some of those trends, in a perverse and unintended way, helped elect President Trump. Things are quite different now than they were eight months ago. But Mr. Trump, from my point of view, is a reaction to not a reversal of the current direction of our country. It's a sign of our national poverty that both Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump were so distasteful and so deeply flawed as candidates in the minds of most people in the last election. So that's the seed of why we're here tonight. Looking back over the past nine years, I think the Obama White House was the most momentous presidency we've had since Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. The most momentous. I didn't say it's the best. I said it's the most momentous. But there's a difference. Roosevelt dealt mainly with the economic and administrative structure of the country's affairs. The Obama White House seemed to go much deeper in seeking to shape the nature of our daily life on issues ranging from religious liberty to transgender rights. And these issues, of course, and others like them, are not morally neutral in the light of Catholic belief. Nations and peoples are changing all the time. If they're not, it means they're dead. America is built on change because we're a nation of immigrants, all of us, even the Native Americans. They came from somewhere else and they pushed out the people that were there before them, actually. So change, when it comes to nations and the world around us, is natural. It's also healthy as long as nations remain continuous in some organic way with their past. A nation's identity breaks with the past when it changes so rapidly, so deeply, and in so many ways that the fabric of the culture ruptures into pieces that no longer fit together. And I think we're very near that point as a country right now. You know, I'm 72 years old. I've been conscious for, what, 68 of those years in a real way. And uh, I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. Never seen anything close to like what it is today. Why do I say that? Here's why. In the past 60 years, basically the span of my adult life, the entire landscape of our economy, communications, legal philosophy, science, and technology, demography, religious belief, and sexual morality has changed. And not just changed, but changed drastically. There's no way to unknow what we've learned or experienced, even if we wanted to. A lot of the changes have been good. 
Today's medical progress is just one of many examples of that. But it's also true that the changes have caused a deep dislocation in the American sense of stability, security, purpose, and self. And that has consequences. Americans who self-identify as atheists, agnostics, or having no religious affiliation at all, went from 16% of the population in 2007, 16% in 2007, to 23% in 2014. Barely seven years. Huge change. That has political and legal implications because religious freedom, as a nation has traditionally understood it, can't be a major concern for people who have no religious faith. Why would they care about religious freedom if they're not religious? And human rights, without a permanent grounding in God or some higher moral order, are really just a matter of public consensus and government largesse dressed up in pious language about human dignity. If there's no one to guarantee human rights, uh, there's nothing but poetry, actually. Well, poetry can be pretty good, so I shouldn't say it that way, you know. But nice-sounding words. I could go on like this for a long time, and I actually do in the book. You know, <laughs> It's all in the book. So I could just quit now, and you could start reading. You know, The point is this. What do we want to do about what's going on in the world around us? The biggest issue we face as Catholics in a seemingly post-Christian world is this. How do we live with joy and hope in a culture that's losing its biblical leaven and pulling itself away from Christian faith and the word of God. How do we live here in this strange world? We can't hide from the world or escape to a mountain cave. And we shouldn't want to do it, even if we could. We Americans are fixers, and I'm always going to be a fixer all my life. Our first instinct when, we, when facing a problem is to always do something practical, It's part of our Puritan Calvinist DNA, even though we are Catholics, at least most of us in this room are. And some things really are worth doing because they really do help. As I say in the book, we need to do a much better job of fostering and welcoming mature lay leadership. And by that I mean not just lay persons with intelligence intelligence and skill, but leaders who are also faithful to what the church holds to be true. So it's not just lay leadership, it's lay Catholic leadership that we need in our, in our times. In Philadelphia, the diocese that I'm now privileged to serve, we have a wonderful core of lay Catholic educators, scholars, doctors, attorneys, and pro-life and social justice advocates. We have business leaders who formed a Faith in the Future Foundation and an Independence Mission School system which is a nonprofit network to serve the poor in, in uh, schools in very needy, poor neighborhoods. And these groups do very fruitful work building the finances to sustain Catholic education, especially for the poor. But even in Philadelphia, or maybe especially in Philadelphia, because until recently we've always had plenty of clergy, our lay leaders are still a very undeveloped underdeveloped resource. 
Some excellent websites and books are available about intentional discipleship and the practical steps anyone can take to help build or renew a vigorous parish life. Forming Intentional Disciples by Sherry Waddell and The Amazing Parish Project are just two examples. But there are many more. These are very valuable tools and they're well worth using. But, now this is the most important part of the book really and most important thing I want to say tonight. In a larger sense, none of these things really solves our deeper problem, which isn't a lack of resources, money, or bright people, or personnel who are working hard, or strategic plans. The problem is, the deeper problem is, a weakness of faith and a failure of imagination because of that. The church in the United States has a huge infrastructure of aging brick and mortar. It was built in a different age for different needs, much of it the age of your parents and your grandparents. We no longer have the resources to maintain it, even if that were pastorally wise, which too often it's not. The realities we'll face as a church in the next 20 years will be very different from and much more challenging than anything in our past. And I think we often lack the courage and ingenuity to deal with it. And when I say we, I don't mean the clergy, the bishops and the priests and the associates. I mean we, all of us, because we are co-responsible for the church. We're not just co-workers, we're co-responsible for the church. So what's the answer? Again, please buy and read my book (laughs) so my publisher doesn't get angry with me. But I can close with a a couple of simple facts. The reason today's new movements, charisms, and communities in the church are so popular and at their best so successful is simple. It's the same reason saints like Dominic and Francis renewed, renewed the Christian church in their own medieval times. These movements put flesh on the meaning of the gospel with the witness of human lives. Today's new Catholic movements provide a reason to believe. The personal and family friendships that are necessary to sustain that belief and the ongoing direction and support needed for real Christian missionary zeal. And that's decisive because American culture, for all its great virtues and advantages, isolates each one of us in our individual appetites and anxieties. It fills our material needs while it often, too often, starves our souls. When you write a book, you can go on and on for pages and chapters about what we need to do to change the world. But in the end, it's very simple. Simple, but also very hard. Plans, programs, policies, and committees, all these things have their place in the life of the church and in her renewal for the future. But the heart of the matter in every life, in every age, never changes. It's whether we are willing to unplug from the world's seductions and distractions and actually live the Beatitudes, or at least try to live them, instead of just revering them as beautiful ideals. 
In order to change things, we have to begin with ourselves. How many times have we heard that? We need to live the words of Jesus Christ that we all claim to believe. In the end, that's a real and most important message in Strangers in a Strange Land. What we need to do is become saints. Thank you very much for your attention tonight. And now we're privileged to hear those who are who've been asked to formally respond. Mary? Thank you, Archbishop. Thank you all for the welcome. Uh, it's a tremendous pleasure, as always, to be here with long-standing co-conspirators, Washington, D.C.'s Catholic hero-in-chief, Father Arnie, uh, Mitch Borisma, Rosemary Holt, and the rest of the CIC team. For those who don't know it, you're at marker mile one of the new evangelization. <laughs> it's a pleasure beyond words to meet Archbishop Charles Chaput. At last, after several years of trying, there's a little story here he alluded to. So several years ago, I went to Denver to give a talk to the Chaput Lecture Series, only to find that the Archbishop had been transferred to Philadelphia. <laughs> the next time around, his team kindly invited me to Philadelphia, only to have that evening canceled by a blizzard. The next time around, I arrived in Philadelphia for the rescheduling, only to learn that the Archbishop had just been called away to Rome. And then tonight's appearance, uh, scheduled for a couple of weeks ago, was also rescheduled because of the weather. So never mind the arguments about whether God exists. I've been wondering for years whether Archbishop Chaput exists. <laughs> and it's wonderful to see it proven. It's humbly humbling to be sharing a, a dais with the Archbishop, who is shepherd to so many, and also to be present alongside Professor Michael Hanby, his uh, 2015 essay in First Things, The Civic Project of American Christianity, is an important touchstone for understanding life in what some people, including the Archbishop, now call post-Christian America. A few words up front about strangers in a strange land. It is a masterful, colorful, beautifully argued rendition of its subject, which is the state of Christianity in a world where many modern people have decided on life without God. That story is told here by the Archbishop with great soulfulness and piercing sincerity. Despite the enormous amount of learning on display, the book is also a rollicking good read, Seldom is erudition worn so lightly or so entertainingly. And now, at the risk of irritating every other author in this room, who I hope are no longer listening because I'm speaking and not the Archbishop, <laughs> uh, if anyone were to ask whether there is a single indispensable book for understanding this cultural moment, Strangers in a Strange Land would be it. That's because this is, above all, a work of hope 
appearing at a time when many traditional Christians sense that their best days in the societies of the West are behind them. As the Archbishop just noted, during the course of the past 60 years, the entire landscape of society has changed on one essential feature after another. In particular, as he also describes in the book, the sexual revolution has given rise to a reigning false anthropology. The archbishop nails this in a single sentence where he observes that the problem with the sexual revolution is, and this is a quote, it has made all sex and all relationships a matter of transaction, a matter of consumption and disposal between radically distinct individuals. That is just one of the many wondrously clarifying moments in this book. Some people like to think there's a left-wingy Catholicism that is anti-consumerist and a right-wingy Catholicism that is anti-sexual revolution. But as the archbishop shows, that's not what the church teaches. Consumerism is wrong for one reason. People aren't things. Now, because Christianity contradicts this dominant, powerfully seductive secular view, Christianity cannot help but attract the criticism and ire of people who want very much to believe otherwise. We can expect more of the same in the years to come, hence the strangers in the archbishop's title. As he points out, there's no way to unknow what we've learned or experienced. We cannot pretend that we live in a world without terrorism, for example, or internet pornography. And yet, perhaps one friendly amendment to this important work is this thought. The same loss of cultural innocence has a flip side, a hopeful side whose outlines are only beginning to appear. More and more, the world also can't unknow something else, which are the damages that today's anthropological errors have wrought. What we see rising from today's flattened plane in the image of, that's a leitmotif in the book are more and more the figures of men and women who rebel against the secularist storyline for reasons moral and aesthetic and otherwise who are turning to Christianity for refuge because they cannot find refuge anywhere else. The thought I would like to share is truly shocking, but shockingly true. The overbearing secularist culture, increasingly averse to Christianity, is itself sowing the seeds of religious revival. Consider the recent outpouring, some of it mentioned earlier, of new and newly urgent scholarship by writers both emerging and established. Patrick Deneen, Rob Dreer, Rod Dreer, Anthony Esselin, Robert George, Aurora Griffin, Michael Hanby, 
J.D. Flynn, Robert Royal, Ashley McGuire, George Weigel, and others. That's one measure of a burgeoning counterculture. So is the proliferation of new associations like Mary Hassan's Catholic Women's Forum in Washington, D.C., or Deborah Savage's Siena Symposium at St. Thomas in Minnesota. Above all, so is the rapid increase in other new communities, especially among young adults, who are finding in Christianity, to paraphrase Christopher Lash, a haven in a secular, heartless world. There are the new institutions in Philadelphia, just mentioned by the Archbishop. In D.C., addition, in addition to the CIC itself, there's also the Leonine Forum. Many members are present, which last year garnered over 130 applications for 40 spots. There's the founding by Dominicans at DHS of Thomistic Institute circles on many campuses, including in the Ivy League. There's the growth of FOCUS, which the Archbishop presided over in Denver, now present on over 100 college campuses. And these are just a few of the newly minted organic forms of fellowship that will transform the American landscape during the next 50 or 100 years in ways unimaginable as yet. These are all founded on a desire for a true anthropology, an authentic account of the human person a search for transcendence in a world that increasingly says there is none. So in closing, it's winter and spring in America at the same time. The idea of an earlier generation of believers that Christianity would find salvation through politics lies cold in the ground, done in by decades of the culture wars, and yet, as we can barely understand yet, that same internment is sending forth prodigious shoots, undreamed of in earlier times, that took Christianity for granted. The Archbishop writes, The surest way to transform the culture is by colonizing and reshaping its appetites and behaviors. Today, many Christians look out to a forbidding, secularizing world and ask how anything transcendent could take root. Yet decades from now, others will look back in time and ask how so much could have grown so fast. And when they ask that, they can start by reading the Archbishop's forward-looking and powerfully reasoned book, which is a gift to us and to the future, and to studying the valiant example of Father Arnie and his many children at the CIC and elsewhere, a.k.a. Father Arnie's Army for the Cause. I've been carrying this book for two hours. It's so good you can't put it down. So, but I'm going to try. I'm still learning how to manage multiple pairs of glasses, um, which means I can't see you. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say thank you, first of all, to, to Mitch Borsma, Rosemary Holt, Father Charles, Father Arnie, 
and the CIC uh, for hosting this event and for inviting me to participate. It's a great honor to be back here again. Uh, I'm also uh, pleased to share the dais with Mary Apperstadt, who I've had the great pleasure of getting to know a bit over the last couple of years. Um, she is not only brilliant, but also very wise. Uh, you should listen to her, and I have enormous respect for her. Uh, but of course, I want to say thanks most of all to Archbishop Chaput for providing the occasion for this discussion with his courageous, provocative, and very important book, uh, which is also a very beautiful book. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about why it's important. <clears throat> it seems to me that it is the first book to emerge from within the American hierarchy that attempts a comprehensive assessment of the civilizational crisis confronting American liberal order. That's my phrase, um, uh, in case that's too dark. Uh, and it truly is uh, uh, comprehensive, um, and, very, and for that reason, very difficult to summarize. So I just want to say a couple of things, uh, draw out a couple of the themes that I think are very important. Archbishop Chaput beautifully treats the ambiguous or tragic legacy of American liberalism, American liberal order, without failing to appreciate what is great and beautiful in American life. And that's a, a very difficult balance, I think, to achieve. Uh, and, he can, and the book contains some beautiful reflections on what patriotism means and might mean under present circumstances. It contains a penetrating analysis of our historical moment, of the relationship between the interminable dynamism of technological society the corresponding crisis of reason in liberal culture, and our failure to transmit both the faith and, for that matter, really a civilization onto our children. He grasps the relationship between the sexual revolution and the technological revolution, the many ways in which, in which the sexual revolution is indeed an expression of the technological revolution, as well as the relationship between the sexual revolution and our increasing but subtle, the, the increasing but subtle absolutism of liberal order, and much else besides. Again, this is, this is truly a comprehensive book, and it is a sign of hope for the church that the church has bishops capable of seeing such truths and writing about them so clearly and so beautifully, and, and I'm very grateful uh, that he has done so and that I've had the opportunity to read it. This book is also important because it is the first acknowledgement that I am aware of from within the American hierarchy that the paradigm long governing American Catholic thought on both the left and the right about the relationship between Catholicism and liberal order might be false or problematic, but that it is, in any rate, certainly inadequate to the civilizational crisis that we now find ourselves in. In this respect, the book offers something genuinely new that cannot be categorized within the stale dichotomy between liberals and conservatives or adequately depicted through the, through the tired culture war trope. Would-be critics are actually going to have to read the book um, and to think about it if they want to do it justice. He offers us a very sober assessment of the state of American Catholicism that this civilizational crisis, sadly, is not something merely external to us and something unlikely to go away within our own lifetimes. 
There is, as he says, and I, this is certainly my experience as well, much grace and much beauty in Catholic life, many grounds for hope in the various movements and institutions that continually spring up uh, like fresh shoots in spring. But there is also a lot of decay in our institutions. And this, plus the process of adapting ourselves to the post-Christian reality, is going to be halting, divisive, painful, and confusing. And it presents us with an enormous challenge, which the Archbishop very powerfully lays before us. (coughs) Namely, whether we really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness and whether we can make a convincing witness to its truth in thought and word and deed. Mindful of the time, I I see my role here very much as that of a kind of a a backup singer. Um, So so I'm I'm going to be brief for for, for the Archbishop and for the conversation to follow. Mindful of the time, I want to just say a tiny bit more about what that challenge might entail, picking up some of the themes that the Archbishop deals with in his sixth, sixth chapter and elsewhere. It's commonplace these days to talk of a crisis of faith, uh, and we've all seen the depressing statistics. And that's very true, but at least from a public point of view, faith has its uses, uh, oftentimes as a foil uh, whose excesses liberal order is supposed to protect us from. The deeper crisis, it seems to me, in this crisis of faith, is the crisis of reason that we now face. Fides et ratio was correct, it seems to me. Faith and reason stand and fall together. And that faith is necessary, in fact, to sustain the commitment to reason. Within liberal and technological order, we have witnessed the reduction of reason to pragmatism of truth to function or to utility. The only reason liberal order seems to recognize is instrumental or technical reason. In which case, part of the deep problem, it seems to me, is that it is not faith simply that is excluded in our current arrangement, but thought, philosophy. Oftentimes, that is replaced by journalism, um, the light-minded empiricism that is the dominant thought form of our culture. (coughs) This is why there seems to be no such thing as a profound question in American public life, and why we therefore decide profound questions about the meaning of human nature, about the nature of freedom, the nature of order, of men, women, and children without really thinking about them. For the Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce, whom the Archbishop cites, this thoughtlessness is one of the marks of what he calls the new totalitarianism, a totalitarianism that aims not positively at world domination, but negatively at the perpetual destruction. We might call it the creative destruction of all forms of antecedent order. It is an aspect of modernity's war on all vestiges of Platonism, of every kind of transcendence except for the transcendence of 
political and technological order themselves, which become absolute. The church inadvertently acquiesces in this to the extent that it forsakes its own Platonism and abandons its native language of theology and philosophy for psychology, economics, social science, and politics. This is why I, I tend to say, and I think the Archbishop uh, says something very similar, that the renewal of Christian freedom, of Christian faith, of Christian life, depends in no small measure upon the renewal of the Christian mind and the Christian imagination, the renewal of our ability to perceive once again the transcendent truths of God and creation. And that this is an enormous task because this pragmatic and technological culture is not outside of us. Most of it have it uh, prosthetically attached to us at all, or to ourselves at all times. My precious. <laughs> the, the Archbishop asks, what do we want to do to change the world? But it's also worth asking, and that's a, that's a very good question, but it's also worth asking what we should do um, when there's not much that we can do. And we may find ourselves, as we are perpetually divested of public power, uh, as our order proves perhaps to be ungovernable um, by its own political structures, uh, that we aren't in control of history. Um, and what I would suggest we can do when there's not much else is that we can understand we need to recover, it seems to me, and I think there is a call to this, uh, the, the, the value of understanding, understanding the truth of God, of our own nature, and of our situation, and that understanding lies at the heart and at the foundation of renewal. This beautiful book is an important contribution to our understanding and therefore an important contribution to that renewal, which is why, though it is not a particularly optimistic book, it is nevertheless profoundly hopeful, and I am grateful, to, as we should all be, to the Archbishop for giving it to us. Thank you. We're going to open it up for questions okay. right away. Are there microphones in the audience? There is a microphone. Okay, very good. So, very good. Um, Questions? One so, in the back here, Rosemary. If you could tell, if you could say which one you'd like to respond to your question, that would be helpful to us too. Archbishop Shapu, this is for you. Um, Pope John Paul II, I believe, said, Christ leads us to Mary, and Mary leads us to Christ. Could you share some of your insights of how Mary, the Blessed Mother, could be an excellent role model for us as we go through these challenging times? You know, one of the characteristics of Catholic devotion to Mary that would be different than, let's say, Protestant devotion, if there is Protestant devotion, uh, would be that we see Mary as our mother and not just as a model. And the question you ask is, in what way is Mary a model for us? And I think she certainly is. She's the first Christian and the best Christian in her full embrace of the of the plan of God by her saying yes at the moment of the Annunciation. Uh, you know, it transformed the world and and if we say fully yes with who all that we are, it certainly leads to our personal transformation and the transformation of the world. But also I'd like to, I'd like to call the church back 
as I try to do in my own diocese, to understanding the maternal role of Mary in our personal lives, because she is also the mother of the church. That means the mother of each of us who are members of the church. And I think that uh, what motherhood does for most of us uh, on a natural level, which is give us security because we know that we're loved and cared for. That's why Mother's Love is the best kind of love in the world. Mother's Day is much more popular than Father's Day. Uh, not, not because mothers love us more than our fathers, but they love us in a different way that gives us security and uh, comfort. And I think that uh, if, we, if we can really kind of move with the church in understanding Mary's maternal care for us as individuals and as our church community, it does give us a lot of confidence in the future, which is hope. So I think Mary's maternal love for us is one of the sources, a unique source of hope for those of us who are Catholic Christians. But, you know, as you say, I mean, she is the model of every Christian virtue because she's responding personally to God's plan. You know, she's a, a servant of the plan of God, and that's what we're all called to be. I hope that's useful to you. Here's a microphone coming. We have to wait till the mic comes. Yeah, there it is. It's right here. There it is. Right there. There it is. <laughs> do, you th- do you think that Catholic priests should uh, recommend which candidates to vote for? Is this for me? Do I think that, w- that we that Catholic priests ought to be able to recommend which candidates to vote for? You know, there was some talk, I think, in the, the uh, Trump administration that they're going to get rid of what the, the Johnson Amendment, which was you know, Johnson, President Johnson was the one who limited the freedom of pastors if they wanted to maintain their tax exemption to en- endorse candidates or parties. And there's a there's a promise, I guess, that, that, that President Trump has made to get rid of that. I fear that terribly. You know, I'm, I've been a great proponent of religious freedom for many, many years. But the last thing I think that we need is, you know, how do I say this? Because I don't want you to think I don't respect my priests. But, <laughs> but they could be really imprudent, uh, as some of us can be. And I don't think we need to have imprudent political language in our church communities. So I personally think that the fact that we're limited in our ability to endorse candidates and parties is really good for the church and good for our freedom. Um, I think that we should have absolute freedom on issues, you know, talk about which issues are important. And we shouldn't be um, persecuted by the uh, IRS because we talk about issues. I have a personal experience. When I was the Archbishop of um, Denver, the um, Catholics for Choice uh, sicked the IRS after me, and I had to spend $80,000 defending the, the Archdiocese of Denver, and I didn't do anything. You know, So I think they can be very bad. But no, I don't want priests to be able to endorse candidates or parties. But Mary, what do you think? And Michael? I don't have a strong opinion about this. I, I mean, it's it's a different kind of question depending upon whether you view it from the point of view of law, um, uh, whether uh, as a matter of law priests should be should be free to do this, uh, and or whether uh, as a matter of canon law or good theological sense priests ought to do this. I would probably be fine with uh, freedom in the first sense and circumspection in the second sense. I hope we gave an adequate answer to you. You have to be the one to decide who gets a mic. I'll take the uh, uh, moderator's okay. prerogative and okay. ask a question Good. here. Okay. Um, we've got a lot of young professionals here, like Mary mentioned, a lot of Leonine fellows uh, in the room in the back there. 
um, many of whom have yet to develop all of the uh, the battle scars of being in the city for for too long. But um, what advice would you give to to young Catholics, to young uh, professional Catholics, uh, as far as um, their place in in trying to sort through all of this? And for, that would be for for each of you. Okay, I'll begin. Go look for the other people who are like you, who are good Catholics and who really want the church to be a significant part of their life because I think you need one another. And if you really do form communities of, of prayer and support, uh, you will be able to be m- much more freely move in the circles that will wound you, and you'll be certainly wounded. It gives you courage. It gives you comfort. And so I think you need one another. And I, need, I think you need your peers. You need those of us who are older, too, to love you as fathers and mothers, but you need brothers and sisters to give you courage. I would say take advantage of the fact that Washington, D.C. is probably the greatest Catholic city in America at this point, with the possible exception of Denver. And I'm sure it's nothing but a coincidence that the archbishop was in both places. Uh, But this is a place where you don't have to be virtual to find a community. And that's a great thing. And know also that nobody really gets percentage points for cowardice. It doesn't do you any good in the long run. Fellowship is the answer to that. Uh, when you ask the question, I assume you mean, uh, or your suggestion is that many of the of the, these young people will be working in uh, official or quasi-official Washington in some way. Um, that comes, it seems to me, uh, working in the public sphere in this city and in uh, liberal order comes with certain necessities. Uh, uh, necessities with respect to what counts as reason, the kinds of things you can talk about, the kinds of arguments you can make, etc. I understand that as a as a t- tactical or strategic matter that you may have to conform yourself to that, but don't let those necessities define the limits of your thought and your imagination. Um, learn the faith, learn the tradition, learn it philosophically. If you don't have uh, a liberal education, take a lifetime to slowly give yourself one. Um, uh, associate uh, with, uh, as, as the Archbishop was suggesting, with, with people that can help you in this regard. Um, there's a great scene. I will, I'll, I'll be very brief with this. Many of you will be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Men. And one of the things that's really fascinating about that book is that a book that ends basically with a grave warning about the brave new world that is rapidly approaching begins with uh, uh, an analysis of elementary school textbooks. What's the connection? Um, The connection has to do with the loss of vision and the loss of imagination um, that leads from the first lecture to the third. Protect against that in yourselves by by thinking and reading and praying and continuing to learn outside of that order of necessity. I'd like to take a moment to endorse what uh, Professor Hanby said earlier in his response about the one thing we can do is understand, Uh, because it really is true among many of the young people that I deal with. They have no interest in understanding our history. They have no interest in studying the great Western culture, that so much of what we take for granted in this country is based on. Um, and, you know, I, as I get older, I still continue to study those things. I think people need to read and study. People don't read anymore like they used to. Um, so I, I think you, were, you really have an insight that the one thing we can do is, is you know, 
uh, into the new dark ages carry understanding by our own reflection and thinking and studying together. I have a question. So um, thank you so much for all of your brilliant talks. Um, my question is, I know that, so uh, Deacon Keith Fournier has spoken about Rodney Stark's book, Arise in Christianity, and how, how it was possible that 12 disciples took over in such a small amount of time and uh, eventually made the Roman Empire Christian um, and how that was possible. And I think a lot of times we, are, um, we, we refer to Christianity as post-Christianity now, and I think that's a disservice to us because I think um, Christianity has to be renewed in every age. And so uh, can you just talk about how we should go about even messaging because Christianity needs to be renewed. Um, and, and just in terms of if we already start at the starting point of that we're post-Christian, is not already putting ourselves back? Uh, thanks, Serena. I just want to make a historical point that I think probably is relevant to that question. Uh, there was a great Yale historian named Kenneth Scott La Tourette who wrote a great big two-volume history of Christianity. And the central puzzle of his intellectual life was exactly this question, what made it tick? What made it, in the course of a few hundred years, spread across the world from 12-plus people? And after a kind of lifetime of puzzling over this, he had two answers in his own mind. One was the sexual morals, um, because they stood in such contradiction to the infanticide, et cetera, um, of, the, of the Roman Empire in particular. Um, it was just noteworthy. People wondered about it. Why would anybody think those things? That drew people in. And the second thing he said was the way that the early Christians took care of their own, which was another thing that didn't make a lot of historical sense at the time. Why would you care for the weak? Why would you privilege the poor over the rich? And so I think these two things um, maybe are thoughts that we can carry with us from here because those are, I believe, as relevant to to our time uh, as they were then. I agree with you. Rodney Stark said much the same thing in his uh, study, historical study of the early sociology of the church. Um, but when you say you know, the, the different understanding of human sexuality, I'd like to tweak that a little bit and say it was an understanding of family life and marriage, of which sexuality is you know, the, at the root and heart. Uh, so I think that if we could really transform the world, if, we, if Catholic started living good, faithful Catholic marriages and had children, and it was a joyful thing. You know, kind of basic things that we, my generation took for granted. Everybody wanted to get married and have children. Now people want to get married and not have children, or they don't want to get married. You know, there are exceptions, of course, and some many wonderful exceptions in these rooms here. But I think marriage and caring for the poor, family life and caring for the poor would should be the the characteristics of a Christian, genuine Christian community. I don't tend to use the term post-Christian a lot, but I do some, and it's, it's probably worthwhile clarifying what is meant by that and why I think it, it, it might be useful and helpful to um, speak that way. 
I don't mean it simply in a kind of chronological sense, as if as if Christianity were dead and this is what 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 comes after, um, but rather in the, to indicate, uh, in a way, the difference in the challenge of renewing Christianity and renewing culture through Christianity that we face relative to that which our ancestors faced. I mean, there's a difference between living in a culture that in some way um, anticipates uh, the, the, the arrival of the gospel, as you could suggest that the Roman conception of law and the Greek philosophy and so forth, that all of those things were taken up and transformed. There's a difference between that, it seems to me, uh, and a culture that is premised in a, to a substantial degree on either a... Uh, heretical modification of the rejection of or the negation of the Christianity that is its own historical foundation, you know, a a culture perpetually at war with its own roots and attempting to erase the memory of those roots. That does not mean uh, that renewal is is impossible, as as Mary suggested in in her lines. I think, in fact, that the seeds of renewal are being sown precisely in those rejections, and there are all kinds of hopeful signs of little shoots of green springing up here and there. But apropos of what I tried to say before about the importance of understanding, I think it is important to understand the the, the difference and, in some ways, the uniqueness of our own cultural situation in which everything, um, at a very deep level, is up for grabs and in which there is a kind of systematic exclusion of uh, of a Christian conception of these things. Uh, and again, she was right. We're never, we can't live in a post-Christian age, right? Because Jesus is the center of history and center of everything. So on one level, I mean, it's just not true. But, you know, when I use that term, I use it for my generation, not for your generation, young lady, because I think we need to be shocked in understanding that what we presumed is no longer there. Those foundations have long disappeared. And many of us, including bishops, just haven't easily arrived at understanding that. And we need a, we need a little shock to get moving in that direction. Uh, just one observation, Mitch. Work. Uh, it's not working. It's not working. Give it a holler. Yeah, I think it is. The, the Archbishop, the one, one thing, uh, one observation to make is that the Archbishop... Um, having read the book, the Archbishop very specifically very specifically uh, indicates that uh, there is no such thing as a post-Christian culture as long as Christians, any Christians, actually believe. The gospel is alive in the heart of the church and in the heart of individual believers, and as long as they still exist, there's no such thing as a post-Christian world. A point on this idea of hope, and it seems to me that we live in a, an age when, number one, we're addicted to change. And number two, the techniques and, and opportunities for getting a message out have never been greater. So it seems to me like we can compress historical epics and you could have a complete turnaround in 25 or 30 years if the Holy Spirit chooses to inspire a few great saints. St. Jose Maria used to always say, these world crises are crises of saints. And you ended your talk on that note. And isn't it true given these two realities. We're addicted to change. There are only so many options out there. We got a good one. And the, and the opportunities for education and social media have never been anything like we have today. So why can't we turn it around in a generation? Well, I hope we can. But I, I just I wish there were more people like you who had that energy and commitment. I, I just haven't seen 
the numbers necessary to turn it around in a generation. And it didn't take that, you know, Jesus didn't turn around the generation. It took 300 years to get to the point that uh, people generally refer to the church being free to be itself in Europe. Um, so it didn't happen in a generation. But they didn't communicate as easily as you now, as we do now, like you said. But that communication seems to be in the hands of people who are on the other side of this battle. You know, it's just extraordinary uh, the the way that the new media are used to undermine uh, the values of Christianity. Mary wanted to say something, I think. Well, I was wondering if uh, Bob Royal is still here. Um, in his last book, he had a quote from Cardinal Manning of London that, that really arrested me. It's very simple sounding. He's, the Cardinal said, um, every human conflict is theological. And where that leads me is to think that we've, we've sort of had the wrong paradigm. I mean, thanks in part to the new atheists, we have this idea that there is belief and unbelief, right? There are religious thoughts and non-religious thoughts, but if instead we understand humanity as theotropic, right, always looking for transcendence and God, then what we, what we face now and what I've argued elsewhere is a, a clash of rival faiths. There is a secularist progressive faith um, grounded partly in the sexual revolution and in the sort of technological shocks uh, that the archbishop describes in his book. And this faith is now vying with Judeo-Christianity, traditionally understood, for the human heart. And the reason I was talking about hope is that I think when you put this rival faith and its picture of the human being up against that of Christianity, it comes up short. It comes up terribly short. Um, and... You know, as with other shocks that have taken a while to to filter down and, and change human behavior, I think this this shock, this clash of rival beliefs, um, might take a little while to settle down. But I believe the explosion, um, and that's not too strong a word, of these new communities for young people, many of them coming from elite places, is partly a reflection of many people seeing that this rival faith has an idea of human nature that they can't embrace. And Father Arnie and I talk about this a lot. He's talked about how all through his career he's seen people come into the church because they come out of these and sometimes very elite situations, Ivy League campuses and places like that, but feeling like they were sold a bill of goods or deprived of a patrimony, a human patrimony, a moral patrimony, that is much richer than what they've been offered instead. Um, and so to the question, yes, there's hope in that, I think. Hi. Um, one of the things that I think has happened in this generation, one generation, is the collapse and closing of Catholic schools across America. And to me, I mean, Catholic school, first grade through college, um, that is the, the strength of our community, is our Catholic education. And I work in education reform, um, I know Casey Carter's doing great things in Philly, and you have an education tax credit for Pennsylvania schools. But schools in New York, I work with the archdiocese, they are just dropping like flies. Every school my family went to in New York is closed. My high school will be shuttered, closed in Miami uh, uh, this year. 
to me, the strength of our community comes from the basis of our Catholic education. But, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but I feel that Catholics were almost accepting of this reality. We don't fight the politicians for more tax credits and for better funding and jurisdictional issues. But to me, that's one of the core problems that we're facing as a society of Catholics is our schools are closing. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Well, I, I've closed uh, 50 Catholic schools in Philadelphia in five years. You know, it's a, it was sad. It was a very difficult thing. But the reason I closed them is because they couldn't, they weren't paying for themselves because there were few, too, too few students. And all the money that used to go into buildings now goes into salaries. And we're not paying really good salaries to our lay teachers like we should. So in some sense, I mean, I agree with you that education is very important, but it doesn't seem like it's important to the families. So what, what, what do we do? How do we convince them that it's important? I had a conversation with one of the state senators of Pennsylvania when I was pushing for s the possibility of the state being open and supporting our schools. And, he's, and he was a you know, very good Catholic, and he said that uh, we really needed Catholic schools back when St. Uh, John... Newman, you know, the saint of Philadelphia who kind of started parochial schools was bishop because Catholic children had enemies in the public schools, you know, people who were Protestants. And we don't have that problem anymore. We don't have enemies in our schools. <laughs> and therefore, we didn't need Catholic schools. I mean, this is, and this is, because I don't think parents recognize the danger the school is to their children. The government schools are to their children. So, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, but I don't know if we can continue. And it seems to me that the future of Catholic schools is probably going to be in cooperative uh, homeschooling rather than in the kind of Catholic schools we've experienced in our youth uh, because we, I don't know how we can continue. You know, all the money's going into salaries and the buildings are all decaying. So how do we do this unless we have government support? And if we have government support, does that lead to government control? All those kind of... It's a really complicated issue. Very complicated. I'm sympathetic... But I don't know the answer. I have actually have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, some, some, some of which, you know, probably shouldn't be repeated in public. Um, I've been involved in, in Catholic education reform, too. Uh, attended a parish whose school was uh, slated for closing, um, uh, along with a half a dozen other schools. We were the only one to survive. Uh, and it's part because we we had a, a wonderful collection of people who were able to be very serious about rethinking what we were actually doing. One of the ways, perhaps, to save – I mean, I think Archbishop Pugh is certainly right that we're, that we're overbuilt. Uh, the, 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 the situation is not physically sustainable. Um, it, it's not the, the, the 1950s anymore. But one of the ways in which some of those schools, I think, could be saved is by offering better education, deeper education, more deeply Catholic and humanistic education, and, and overcoming, rethinking the model which sort of presents public school education plus religion class. I mean, perhaps part of the problem in some instances has to do with the fact that Catholic educations not simply aren't, sometimes aren't Catholic enough, but aren't education enough. Um, and so if, if, if that's the kind of thing you're involved in, I think, you know, until we're really deeply serious about, about I mean, it's, it's funny, in, in education, I see this all over the place, I, um, 
you know, so often we approach it, we approach education as if like building a house starting with the second floor. It's, it's astonishing how infrequently people in education ask what education is. Um, and therefore, a lot of uh, disorder and disarray or, or, or mediocrity tends to follow as a result. I think uh, if we were more deeply serious about that effort, which I presume is, is, is what you're involved in, then some schools um, might surprisingly be saved. And I'm, I would be very hopeful about that. Yeah, I agree. But this is your job, not mine. I mean, uh, you know, I said I closed 50 schools. I mean, I had the final word. And what that meant is I couldn't continue to subsidize it. That's all that meant. Because I had to come up with the money, and I didn't have it, so I couldn't keep it. But it's your job. I mean, you're, you, we're co-responsible for the church. And if you want school reform, do it. You know, do it. You know, you don't need the bishop to do it. You just do it. There seems to be an apathy in the flock, yes. Yeah, I'm, I think so. And that generally inoculates the priest, too, to be apathetic. If the flock's apathetic, the pastor's going to become apathetic after a while. So it really is your fault, not mine. <laughs> what a great place to uh, end. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, just close joking. the evening. Before we do, uh, three, uh, three small points. Uh, the first is the PBS portion of the evening. Uh, we're so appreciative to many of you who support the CIC. If you like the CIC, if you love what we do, if you love our ability to put on events like this, uh, we would love to have your support. The second, uh, it's going to be tempting as we end to rush the stage in a Beatles-like fashion. However, if we can uh, help the Archbishop get to the back uh, in order to be able to sit down and sign some books for everyone, uh, we'd really appreciate that. I'm going now before they stand up. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. And the third final Thank you, Michael. is that... Uh, when you do get your book signed and you buy it and you read it and you love it, please go to Amazon and review it. It makes a big difference for him. It makes a big difference around the country for people who are going to be able to uh, to read it. So please do that. Again, thank you all for coming. And please join me in a, a big round of applause. Thank you all of our guests. <laughs>